The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. again, everyone. Welcome, especially to those of you who are here for the Thompson's Baptist. It's great to have you all this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you right now through Jesus Christ, your son, for we pray in his name. Amen. Five years ago, I preached on this passage from Acts chapter 16. It was right before we moved into this building. And that summer, Alyssa and I had been traveling in Santa Barbara, visiting a seminary friend of mine. During that trip, I went almost every day to Handlebar Coffee there in Santa Barbara. And every time I went, there was a small brown and black chihuahua that was there. This chihuahua had one eye. It was a very creepy little dog. I'll never forget this dog. He would walk around the coffee shop like it owned the place. And it would just lie down in the middle of the pathways and, and people would have to go around it. Or it would just go sit on the sidewalk outside, adjusting, making everyone else adjust they're walking for it to lie there. It's like it owned the place. And one morning I was watching this dog for the fourth or fifth time and I was reading the scriptures and I thought, that's what the scriptures are like. That's exactly what the scriptures are like. Like a living obstacle redirecting our path. Not only where we go or how we behave, but how we think and how we feel and what we believe and how we love, especially the book of Acts. This summer, our sermon series on the book of Acts is entitled, A Story to Set Our Expectations, or maybe reset them, adjust them, reset them to what following Jesus in this life is actually like. And in our passage this morning, that happens. Everyone's expectations get reset. Everyone's life gets redirected as they begin to participate in the life and the mission of Jesus. We are all participants in some life and in some mission question is whose or what mission? How can we know as a church, as individuals, that we are those participating in Jesus's life and his mission? So two marks this morning to answer that question. The first mark is that the church in Acts, here in Acts chapter 16, as well as throughout the book, those participating by faith in the life and mission of Jesus, that church is a diverse community. 
And Craig preached on this passage and on this, this last week. I want to build a little on what he said. The setting here in Acts chapter 16 is the city of Philippi, the very same Philippi to which the New Testament book Philippians is written. This is the beginning of that church. And if you were to read all of the letters of the New Testament and compare Philippians to the rest of them, you'll notice how positive, how encouraging that letter is. It sounds as though the church at Philippi was a very healthy and faithful church. Paul repeatedly uses words like joy and affection when he talks to them. And the overarching call that he has upon them is to press on, to continue on, to not stop, but continue on the path that you're already on. And Paul's not the only one in the New Testament who commends this church. Jesus himself at the very beginning of the book of Revelation goes to seven churches. The church at Philippi is one of those churches. And it's one of only two of those churches that receives no critique or no rebuke whatsoever from Jesus. He too commends them to hold fast, similar to Paul's language of pressing on, hold fast, continue in the faithfulness in the face of all of the suffering, the persecution that you're facing. And the point is, this was a great church. It was a healthy church. It was a faithful church. It was one of Paul's success stories. And not all of the churches that he planted were all that successful or healthy or faithful. And you need to know that not all churches participate in the life and the mission of Jesus to the same degree. Some participate initially, but only for a little while. Some stop or have stopped entirely from participating in his life and mission. And they're only a church in name, but nothing else. We have to remember Corinth, that church that the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians is written to. That church was obsessed with power and wealth and giftedness. They were obsessed with talent. They were hyper image conscious. They were vain. And in their vanity, they were contemptuous of the weak and the vulnerable. And what Paul ultimately says to them is that you lack love. You lack love. That, that famous first Corinthians passage about love, it had to be written to them because that's what they lacked. They were suing one another over financial disputes. There was known sexual immorality in the church among members that the entire church was ignoring. There were also people who were getting drunk on the wine for the Eucharist. If you can imagine things like that, that was happening there. So not all churches have the same spiritual vibrancy and depth as the church of Philippi. And this is how it begins. Don't overlook how it begins and with whom it begins. Who does Jesus provide Paul with as the people who will be the beginning of this church? Did you notice that it's a wealthy, religious Gentile woman named Lydia? formerly demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl, number two, and then a suicidal jailer. Those are the three. And who wants to sign up for that church? Who wants to sign up to lead that church? Lydia, she was a convert to Judaism before meeting Paul. That's what it means in verse 14 to be a worshiper of God. It was common for Jews and Gentile converts to gather by rivers on the Sabbath to pray and to worship when there wasn't a synagogue in that city. And that's what's happening here. And we know she was rich because she sold purple cloth and, and purple cloth was high in merchandise then because of how expensive the dye was to turn the cloth purple. And she had a household of servants, not just a few, but a household. They're all baptized with her once she is baptized. And she had a number of servants because she had a big house, big enough for all of Paul's entourage to stay with her. And that's the first person. She represents someone who has everything. Someone who in this life and in this world has everything. She's on the very top of the ladder of humanity in this life. But then we have a person next on the very bottom. This slave girl who owns nothing. Doesn't own her own body. Doesn't own her own life. Doesn't even own her own mind. 
She's possessed by, by some sort of dark spirits inside, possessed by men outside of her who own her and exploit her. She represents the lowest of the low, the very bottom rung of, of society on the social level, spiritual level. And then last we have the suicidal jailer. And if Lydia represents the very top and this, this young slave girl represents the very bottom, he represents someone who had it all and then lost it all. And what did they have in common, these three founding members? What did they have in common? Nothing, nothing at all until Paul comes and tells them about Jesus. One of the things I want you to hear this morning is that God joins together those that the world only tears apart. God joins together those that the world only tears apart. And there's so many in our world, so many in our society that are completely torn apart and God alone can join them together like this. And this happens throughout the book of Acts, not just here. And it's not just that Jesus joins together people who have nothing in common, but he sends his followers to people who are nothing like them, people that they don't have anything in common with. So just a few weeks ago, I preached on Acts chapter eight and Philip going to Samaria. And remember what I told you about the Jews and Samaritans. Do you remember what I told you? They hated each other. Absolute enmity, absolute hatred. And then after that, at the end of chapter eight, Jordan preached upon Philip being sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, a rich, powerful, sexually altered Ethiopian man, a man who had chosen to be castrated in order to climb the social ladder of political success in a powerful country. A working class Jew is sent to him. And then after that is Acts chapter nine, it's Paul's conversion. And Paul, before he met Jesus, was a murderous religious extremist. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus also appeared to a man named Ananias, a Christian. And he tells Ananias, go to Paul. And Ananias understandably balks and says, Lord, I've heard many things about this man and how much evil he has done to Christians like me. In other words, I don't want to go. I am afraid to go. I don't want to go to this man. But he goes because Jesus sends him. Next chapter, Peter sent to a Roman centurion. And the Romans were as hated by most of the Jews as the Samaritans, but for different reasons, because the Romans were their oppressors. The Romans were their abusers, those who had harmed them and had taken everything from them. They were in complete and utter subjugation to the Roman empire. And the army was the brutal arm of that empire. And so four times in three chapters, right in the very middle of the book, back to back to back, to back, Jesus sends his followers to people they have absolutely nothing in common with. And why? Why would he do this? Because this is what Jesus is like. And this, if this is what Jesus is like, this is what God is like. We learn about who God is through Jesus, God in human flesh. And he moves towards those who are very much unlike him time and time again throughout the gospels. Like the woman at the well in John chapter four, nothing like him. Or like our gospel reading, the, the, the story of Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector in Luke chapter 19. Think about them, but also think about yourself. If you are a Christian this morning, you need to know it's because he has come to you. He has come to you because you never would have come to him. The power of sin within you, within us all, would never let us. In our sin, we have very little in common with Jesus. In our souls and left to ourselves, left in our sins, we're nothing like him. But God came to us. God the Son came to us. He took on our fallen human flesh, our fallen human nature. He lived for us. He died the death that we deserve. He was raised in order that we might have all things in common with him. Everything that is his. His relationship with God the Father given to us 
that we might have it in common with him. The very life and presence of the Holy Spirit in common with him given to us as a share. So God became like us when we were nothing like him that we might become like him in our hearts, in our lives, and in our mission that we might go to people who are nothing like us just as he went to others who are nothing like him. And this is the first mark. And the question that we have to ask is, do we bear it? Do we bear this mark individually? Do we bear it as Christians? In other words, who are you, who are we not moving toward with the grace and the kindness of God simply because they aren't like us, They're not like you. I like you in your politics, not like you in social class or in their nationality, their ethnicity or in their dress or in how they look. Who are you not moving toward because you don't feel like they fit? Gage, my second son, uh, and I got stuck in Newark, New Jersey this week. And that is as depressing as it sounds. Our 9 p.m. flight on Monday night was canceled at about 3 p.m. So the best option was 6 a.m. the next morning, Tuesday morning, which means we had to wake up at 3.45 a.m. Eastern time. And I was one of the last ones on the flight and I had a middle seat. And when I got to my seat, there were two very large men on the window and on the aisle. One of them, I swear, had to play in the NFL. I mean, his legs covered up the entire place where I was supposed to sit. And I just kind of limply and despondently pointed at my seat. I couldn't even say anything. I couldn't even say this in my seat. I just kind of pointed at it. And the guy on the aisle looked at me and he said, you think you're gonna fit? <laughs> I don't know if he was joking or if he was serious. And I just said, I don't know, but I think we've got to try. And so I sat down and he said, yeah, I guess so. You don't want your armrest, do you? I was like, no, I'm fine without my armrest. <laughs> it wasn't the most hospitable reception that I had ever received. But then I began working on this sermon and I wondered, do we say things similar? Do we ask questions like that implicitly? Maybe not using those words, but do we ask people implicitly to communicate to them that we wonder if they will fit? I'm trying to hire a Latino pastor for our church right now. I was on the phone with him Tuesday afternoon after this happened Tuesday morning. And this is what he asked me. He said, Tim, if I come and 100 Latinos or 150 or more Latinos come, Spanish-speaking, bilingual immigrants, first-generation, working-class Latinos, how will they be received? Will they be welcomed into your worshiping community? And you know what I said? Same answer I told that man earlier this morning. I don't know, but we've got to try. And this is the first mark of the church in the book of Acts. It's a diverse community. And here's the second mark. The second mark is that they have a pathway through the chaos. This jailer asked Paul and Silas in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? And we hear that question as modern people worshiping in a Protestant church, and we probably immediately think that he's asking about eternal salvation. We think the crisis here of the earthquake has created a crisis of of faith for him, a spiritual crisis, and he's worried about his individual relationship with God. So we hear, what must I do to be forgiven of my sins? What must I do to be set right in an eternal relationship with God? In other words, I'm concerned about life after death because that was one of the driving questions of Protestant Reformation. 500 years later, we're still leading with that question when we read texts. And it's not an incorrect reading, but I do think it can become too narrow of a reading for us because this man just lived through a natural disaster and he almost kills himself here because it was his job to guard these prisoners. And in that day and age, 
when a prison guard lost prisoners, they, they didn't get demoted. They didn't have their pay cut. They were given the sentences of those who had escaped. And so he knew that when his bosses showed up, he wasn't just potentially gonna lose some money. He was gonna lose everything. He was gonna lose at least his freedom and probably also his life. And so he attempts suicide because better to deal with the utter and complete chaos now than have to deal with it later. Because he represents, as I said earlier, someone who's lost everything. It wasn't just the prison that shook. This man's soul shook to its very core. He knew everything that he had worked for, everything he had in this life was gone. So what would his family do? What would other people say? What would he do going forward? And so it's life before death that drives him to draw his sword here. And I just have to ask because I wonder if some of you are where this jailer is this morning or at least close to it. A little over a week ago, a pastor friend of mine that I went to seminary with took his own life. It was last Saturday and the funeral was on Friday. I wasn't able to go, but he had been struggling with severe and as his wife said, uncommon mental illness for about eight months. He was struggling with life before death with this mental illness and all that it involved. And eventually it took his life. And I hadn't spoken to him in eight or nine years, uh, but we had every class together for three years. We lived on campus together. Our families lived together. His children line up perfectly with ours. His oldest is going to college here in a few weeks. And 15 years ago, I would have never imagined that he would be in the place where this jailer is, but through the brokenness of this world, through the difficulty of mental illness, he found himself exactly there. And he's not alone, not even close. An article that I read a few months ago in the Washington Post said that 40% of Americans struggle with mental illness or one drug-related problem. And among young adults in the United States, the percentage is much, much higher. 75% struggle with mental illness or a drug-related problem. Last year at the height of the pandemic in the winter, the CDC reported that one in four young adults had had thoughts about suicide. And so there's something transpiring in our culture. And I can't help but wonder if the rise in secularism relates to the rise in the suicide rates because over the past two decades, the suicide rate worldwide has decreased. But in the United States over the same time period, it's increased by 35%. And among young adults and teenage United States kids, in the last decade, it's risen by 56%. So something is transpiring, something is happening. And the point is, is that there are many in our culture in and around us who are just exactly where this jailer is. And in verse 28, Paul cries out, do not harm yourself, we are here. Think about those words for someone in a situation like this. Do not harm yourself, we are here. And why did that call work for this man? Here's why I think. Because this jailer knows what Paul has been through. He's been through mob violence, a false accusation. He's been stripped naked. He's been falsely accused. He's experienced an excruciating beating with rods that this guy probably administered. And then he was also falsely imprisoned. And Paul heard him, or Paul was heard in this prison, praying and singing, not shouting, not protesting, not cursing, not weeping, praying and singing in the midst of utter chaos and total loss. Paul lost everything long before this jailer did. But somehow, some way, he wasn't crushed by his loss. And so the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued out of this? 
In other words, Paul, do you have a pathway for me through this loss? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You'll be led through this dark, devastating, complete loss that you now face and whatever loss that you might face going forward. You'll be even led through death itself into life after death and Jesus won't even leave you then. Then you go to God the Father with him. You're never alone when you have Jesus. And this jailer believed Paul because Paul sang in prison. Paul lived as though he had a pathway through the world's loss and chaos. And friends, that is the second mark of someone or of a church participating in the life and the mission of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I preached on Acts chapter 14, and there's a profound statement there that I didn't get to. After Paul has been nearly killed from stoning by an angry mob, he says this to the church who witnessed it all. He said, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that is a statement that sets all expectations. And it doesn't mean that we somehow have to suffer enough in order to qualify for heaven. It doesn't mean that in the least. But what it does mean is that for those who believe in Jesus, we don't become more like him without hardship and without difficulty. Our faith doesn't transform us apart from that. And think about it, what's gonna give you joy and peace? What's gonna carry you on and sustain you through whatever hardship or loss you have? In the long run, what's gonna carry you through? It's gonna be things like dependence and humility and the ability to pray, and the habit of reading God's words, be dependence, dependence upon God, his promises, the presence of his spirit, the presence of his people with you. It's gonna be dependence and humility, which is not thinking less of yourself. It's just the capacity to think of yourself less, just to take your eyes off yourself. And the ability to pray in that, the habit of reading God's word and actually listening, actually hearing God speak to you through the reading of his word. It's things like this that will make you a peaceful, joyful person in the long run. And we rarely find them without hardship because they come with God. And hardship is what drives us to him. Hardship all too often is what drives us into the kingdom of God and then further up and further in once we enter. And so are you singing this morning? Regardless of what's happening, are you singing? Are you especially singing in your suffering? If you are, you need to know it doesn't just benefit you. It does, but it doesn't just benefit, with, benefit you because when you attempt to sing in your suffering and pray in your prison, whatever that suffering, whatever that prison may be, if you will do it week after week with us here in worship, even when you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it, but you do it because you believe that the promise of God's presence to you in your loss is greater than your current feelings about your loss, or you do it because the promise of God's presence to you in your loss and, and the hope of a renewed life with him without any loss, it's greater than your current feelings about your loss. When you do that, you can be assured you're participating in the life of Jesus, but not just his life, but his mission as well, because others will see you. Others will see you and hear you sing and see you pray, and they will know what's going on. They will know what you're singing in the midst of. And the Lord will use your song, the song that you sing and the prayers that you pray in your prison to be a voice of hope when the earthquakes of this world hit other people's lives. Five years ago, I had a dear friend who was dying of cancer. And he asked me the inevitable question that all people in that situation eventually ask, which is why? Why, why me? Why now? And I had to say, I don't know. But I do know that 
as you continue to sing and as you continue to pray and as you continue to seek after Jesus in the midst of your great suffering, I find hope that the gospel is true and that Jesus is real and that he will carry me through whatever lesser sufferings and difficulties that I face. It's part of the mission of Jesus. And so sing this morning. Sing in whatever suffering you face and in doing so, reach out to others. Reach out to others, especially those who are nothing like you because this is our life. These are the marks of our life and our mission, the very life and mission of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that by your grace, we would be people like we read of in your scriptures, that your living word would redirect our path, would change our path, change our expectations, and do so even this morning, even now, as we come to your table to celebrate your life and to be nourished upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.